From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Candace Watt-Smith. I'm Dennis Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. If all four of us are together, that means we have come to the end of another season of the show, and uh, this will be our final episode for 2022. And we're going to do something a little bit different uh, this time. I've been thinking about all the guests we've talked to throughout the course of the year on the show. I realized we've had some pretty incredible folks come through our recording spaces, both uh, in the studio and online. And I thought that we would take uh, some trips back and and revisit some of the things that we've learned from them. So we will be interspersing clips from some of our guests throughout the episode and kind of reflecting on what we took from them and, and some of the bigger lessons in democracy that we also try to bring forward on the show. Michael, I know you say sometimes that you think of the podcast as a seminar. And so that is what we're going to try to do here today. So we are going to start with a topic that we've we've talked about on the show pretty much since the beginning, and that is federalism, state politics, some of the conflicts between national and state politics. Uh, and we had two guests in particular this year that I thought really hit on that. First was Jake Grimbach from the University of Washington, who had a book come out earlier this year called Laboratories Against Democracy. Jake was recently on the Ezra Klein show as well, but we will always be able to say we had him first before uh, before Ezra did. Uh, and and the, the New Yorker put him on the good books list. For oh, some. right, right, right. Yes, it, uh, it, it is a very good book. And the other uh, was... Judge Jeffrey Sutton, who has a book called Who Decides, um, which looks at federalism through the lens of, of state constitutions, and as you'll hear, with a very heavy lens on Justice Brandeis. So let's take a minute and hear from Jake and then from Judge Sutton. When coalitions that are supportive of democratic institutions like the expansive right to vote, fair districting, things like that. When they do take national power, you should really use it to standardize national standards across states and democratic institutions. That's very crucial. And historically, you see this pattern. Threats to American democracy have tended to be state legislatures have been the main sort of backsliders or institutions that hold back democracy, whether it's through allowing slavery, Jim Crow, disenfranchisement, even mass incarceration, now current threats to uh, voting rights and gerrymandering and so forth and election subversion. It's been the Supreme Court that has largely enabled these state legislatures. And then it's been when they step up, Congress has been the one to stop state legislatures from doing that. So Congress has tended to not actively backslide. But they often have this sin of uh, omission where they don't actually organize to pass national policy to stop state legislative backsliding on democratic institutions. So I think that's an important implication. And then also just in a way broader sense, all of those theories of federalism being great for policy innovation and so forth, policy learning, bringing people closer to their you know, elected officials depolarizing politics nationally, all of those things don't appear to apply anymore in this era of highly nationalized, polarized parties and national media and all of this. Those don't seem to apply anymore. 
If you have a new problem, let's let's talk about things that we all agree are problems: opioids, data privacy, I suppose features of the pandemic. And there are parts of these problems that, you know, it's very hard to get up on a soapbox and say there's just one and only one answer. We'd love to have the opioids crisis behind us. We'd love to have a way to be more confident about data privacy. And what Brandeis says, and he's saying this back in the 20s and 30s, 1920s and 30s, is that when you have a new policy problem, uh, why not let a brave state take a shot at solving the problem? And if they develop a good or even winning insight, other states can follow it. And if a truth really emerges, then at that point, you nationalize your solution. The key insight I'm trying to take from Brandeis is you know, we have 50 state court systems, we have 50 state constitutions. Why not use the state courts as the initial innovators, mm-hmm. initial laboratories of experimentation when it comes to the meaning of what processes do? When is a search unreasonable? It means there'll be less resentment and conflict once you have a national solution, if you have one. It probably promotes the best ideas as opposed to prematurely constitutionalizing something. So that's that's the basic idea. And it's a you know it's a really interesting time to be thinking about it because whatever one thinks about the current US Supreme Court, it is a court that is a little less willing to take issues out of the democratic sphere. Whereas in earlier courts, particularly in the 50s and 60s, that was something the US mm-hmm. Supreme Court was pretty comfortable doing. And so we're just living in this world where now you have two opportunities, not one, to protect rights you Mm -hmm. dear. So it was really fascinating for me to be reminded of these two scholars and to have them back to back. Sutton is a Brandeisian. He, um, you know, really kind of focuses on the idea that states uh, are more nimble, they are more flexible, their constitutions are more likely to change. The idea here is that um, states will customize their uh, policies and legislation for their constituents. And he argues historically that states have become more democratic. And in this case, he means, you know, incorporating elections for state judges or introducing the initiative um, or having more opportunities for direct democracy, which the federal government doesn't have these um, kind of very direct you know, democracy components. But putting these uh, two folks in conversation, we see that Jake is really interested and concerned with politics, not just principles. And so, for example, we have the principle that um, at the state level, Americans have more say. They can change laws. For example, they can change abortion laws. But this misses out on the politics of, for example, the Supreme Court, um, you know, allowing for a great deal of democratic backsliding by dismantling the Voting Rights Act. So, you know, there's an idea that people can vote in their states. But um, and I think um, Jake's work really kind of presses on this idea that we have also come into a situation where fewer people in some states have a modicum of opportunity to get their say at the state level. So, you know, I think here we kind of can see what our principles are, and the contradictions that are uh, produced in practice. Yeah, on the on the one hand, you know, Sutton is making the argument that states are more democratic in the kinds of institutions that they have, right? So they have access 
to initiatives and referendum that's not available at the federal government. And judges might be elected as opposed to appointed at the federal level. And we could go on. Uh, Candace mentioned some. But what Jake is pointing out is that, well, th this may be true, but at the same time, they're, they're passing laws that restrict democracy. Mm -hmm. And this is really not all that concerning to, to Sutton, at least that's what I kind of picked up in the in the discussion with him, and even in the in the uh, clip that Jenna just played, which I think is fairly representative. You know, he's talking about policies, and I mean, a very Candace is correct in sort of referring to him as Brandeisian because he's referring to different kinds of policies, right? So he's talking about uh, responses to the pandemic and opioids and data privacy and things mm -hmm. like that. But he's not talking about actually the fact that states are responsible for essentially establishing the rules of democracy in this country mm -hmm. because elections are all pushed down to the state level. And in there, you know, Jake's work is really powerful. In, mm -hmm. in pointing out how some states have moved in highly regressive directions. Others have not, uh, but some have really moved in highly regressive directions. And I don't know, maybe we can get to it or not, but I do think it's really interesting some of what Sutton had talked about to now see what's going on post-Roe, because it is actually the case that many of these state constitutions are providing pro-choice forces with avenues to uh, fight that, to my knowledge anyway, had not really ever been used before. And so you're seeing these interesting cases uh, in state courts in Utah and in Florida and other places where state constitutions may actually be more protective of people's rights to choose uh, reproductive freedoms than uh, the national constitution. The reason I would find them distinctive is, is, is follows on that, um, Michael. It's it's uh, Jake's argument that federalism doesn't work as well when politics becomes nationalized mm -hmm. and when there just isn't as much distinctiveness within and among states. And so you have these um, arguments that are that where the state is almost rendered uh, just a, a smaller actor in the same dynamic. And I feel like Sutton, for all his knowledge and, and really impressive knowledge of these state constitutions, is, is operating at a theoretical level where Jake's saying, well, that's not how it's working anymore. Another theme that we heard uh, this year on the show was the idea of liberalism uh, and majorities and counter majorities was how I, I framed it in our notes document. The idea of what role should institutions play? Uh, how much should we, you know, how should we think about majorities and minority rights and that relationship? And so on the, on this point, uh, we're going to hear uh, first from Francis Fukuyama and then from Jamel Bowie. I think that for many people on the progressive left, the real problem is that liberalism is slow. It works by law. It's very procedural. You have to respect, you know, the rights of all the people, including entrenched interests, and so sometimes it's very hard to you know to change things, uh, and that is very frustrating because liberalism in no society has ever lived up to the full 
promise, you know, that everybody would be treated equally under the law. That doesn't happen in the United States today, despite, you know, our founding on those principles. Uh, and so that's one thing. I think there are other sources of discontent. Uh, so a lot of it has to do with economics. You know, uh, liberal societies protect property rights. And for that reason, I think they've been associated with economic growth and prosperity. But beginning in the you know, late 70s and 80s, you had the rise of what's now called neoliberalism, where I think market principles were carried to extremes. And also the state, you know, the role of the government was denigrated. And there was an attempt to roll back the state to a point where you had financial instability. Uh, because of deregulation, you had the growth of a lot of inequality. And that, I think, you know, led to a lot of populism in the 2010s because people didn't like the world that emerged the, uh, out of those principles. That is sort of an example of how our system works to constrain big majorities from just forming in the first place and then acting. The problem, I think, with this insight, especially as it's applied to our system of government, is that it <laughs> uh, it misses the extent to which majorities, when they're large and diverse majorities especially, uh, can act in ways that do actually preserve the liberties of everyone within them. That these, that a large pluralistic majority, uh, because it's comprised of many different kinds of groups, uh, is it's possible for it to act in ways that seek to preserve a minimum level of security for everyone in the group. And I think that if you look at American history, you see that actually happening quite often. You see big pluralistic majorities when they're able to form trying to do things to preserve like a baseline of political rights for everyone involved. And it isn't it isn't our counter majoritarianism that protects that in that, that protects people at the mercy of, you know, I, I think I said in that piece, local bullies and bosses, right? It, it ends up being majorities trying to act that that attempts to do it in our, it's our counter-majoritarian system by empowering, you know, what the framers may have called factional uh, minorities, by empowering those factions on the local level, on the state level, on the federal level, to some extent, that stymies the ability to protect um, vulnerable minorities within the political system. And I think that that is just like not how Americans are accustomed to thinking. I think for a variety of reasons from, from sort of Cold War era civics education, right, where we have to we have to hype up the American political system as like the best of all possible worlds, to sort of like the residual sense that like you know states are a uh, your state identity is is sort of this paramount political identity and you got to protect mm -hmm. it. Like for all these reasons, Americans um, have come, many Americans have come into this idea that if we let majorities act, something terrible is going to happen. And I just don't, I don't think the evidence really supports that within the American system. So those were, those were two interviews that I enjoyed quite a bit. I think they have different foci, but it's, it's interesting to think about how they differ uh, in that we see both sides of liberal democracy here. I think Fukuyama focuses much more on the liberal side of liberal democracy. And uh, so protections, uh, rights, uh, restrictions on government power. Uh, but for Bowie, democracy is really about popular will and responsiveness about uh, majorities. And the constitution that for Fukuyama would, would provide the liberalism, the protections, for Bowie is a restraint 
on democracy. And I mean, I just thought he was, uh, I've thought about it a lot since the interview, the, the sort of framing he had of talking about the Constitution as a kind of constraint on democracy. And of course, I've always sort of taught the Constitution that way, but I haven't really ever sort of formulated it that way going forward, that we tend to conflate the two and talking about the Constitution as though it is American democracy, but it's not. It's defining the limits on power. It's defining who has powers. Uh, but in fact, our country has been nothing but a progression with steps back, but basically a progression towards greater democracy away from the Constitution, even to the point where we've had to change it multiple times in order to keep up with the democratic uh, impulse uh, within the country. One thing that stood out to me regarding these two is that they both kind of touch on the idea that what we call democratic institutions can be used in illiberal and anti-democratic ways. Mm-hmm. So for, um, it seems to me um, that Fukuyama, you know, a person can be democratically elected to be repressive. These are not um, mutually exclusive possibilities. And then for Bui, we have a number of counter-majoritarian institutions that are ostensibly designed to protect more minority rights, but these two can be used to prevent the extension of more rights and greater inclusion. The thing that stands out to me about Bowie is that he really takes an optimistic stance on the potential for the majority, which also just kind of rethinking uh, like the way we've been socialized about, you know, kind of be beware of the power and the tyranny of the majority. But I wonder still if we're at a particular moment in time where if we have a large majority with many factions, then, you know, people will be in multiple factions. And so ideally they would protect, uh, they would expand rights and they would, there would be greater inclusion. But, you know, I wonder, I don't know, I wonder if that's just something we're in a democratic, we have, maybe we're in a particular moment of being optimistic around that issue. And if there are other moments where where actually we do want to be sure that the majority can be constrained. This is typical buoy, right? I mean, he's contrarian. He's, he's uh, focused on history. And um, it's always kind of um, thought-provoking and challenging to, to listen to him. I mean, I think, you know, he acknowledges, right, that tyranny of, major- of the majority is a thing. And it's, it's also true that that's particularly important, uh, particularly something that the founders were uh, worried about, right? But the, the, the other point, and, and so I guess I feel like there's, you know, there's risks everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Every institution can undermine and subvert rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it kind of makes me think, one thing I take from it is that you know, it speaks to how important having those rights articulated, how important it is to have them articulated. I mean, they can still be circumvented, but it's harder to do that mm-hmm. when they are there explicit, agreed to, articulated. So um, so kind of like the having the necessity to protect uh, marriage equality and interracial marriages right now. Right, exactly. I mean, that's right. And, and I wonder, actually, that's interesting you say that, because that's one of the things I was thinking. Is it true... And I, I, I don't know this, but my bet is that gay marriage came about more quickly because of the courts than it would have if it had been a national issue. Um, See, I and I don't know that to be true, but I certainly think it's at least 
plausible. So I don't know that it's always the case that, um, I'm, well, I'm sure it's not always the case that the well, majority is going to be more democratic. Might have been the other way around, you know, the courts came around because majorities it might have been. were shifting so quickly. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the other thing is like the, you know, for example, you know, in 2012, North Carolina had left it to the voters and the voters said no. Right. And so that's one state. And so one of the things that Bowie, like Grumbach, is not a Brandeisian, right, is uh. this kind of idea that this like that states can prevent a greater inclusion of of rights. So we might have expected in any particular state, some states would vote for it and some states would vote against it. But if there are a national uh, poll and, you know, let's say we could all vote, maybe mm-hmm. maybe we would have voted as a country for marriage equality in ways that at various states we would not have. Which yeah, is, I, his, I think it's kind of his argument, right? So quickly there, right? Obama basically got outed as being for gay marriage, right, in, in his administration. And then, you know, uh, how, how much later was the Supreme Court ruling? But yeah, so it's all kind of, you know, these things just kind of turn quickly once they're determined that they're going to turn. One thing that kind of stood out to me in the particular clip it made me thinking about is just kind of the role of governance. And, you know, this kind of idea that, um, you know, we're seeing all of these kind of chipping away at, you know, government actually working. So we hit upon these, the questions of, of governance um, when we talked to Don Moynihan and also Christopher Alley about rural broadband and just kind of how this orientation towards market principles carried to the extreme are actually uh, undermining um, many of the things that we need most to get just things running, to to make government work, even if you want it to work in a constrained way, at least you want it to work efficiently and effectively. Um, and so, you know, that 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 conversation made me think of, um, you know, just kind of thinking about administrative capacity or the extent to which kind of a neoliberal orientation has prevented Americans from having, you know, what is now a basic necessity, um, in this case, broadband. Yeah, that's and I think that's part of Fukuyama's point, too, is that. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. neoliberalism did enormous damage to the capacity of government to govern, and uh, in part by hollowing it out, but also by, and I think probably more to the point, by destroying people's confidence in it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and also, you know, and and Bill Clinton had a lot to do with this <laughs> because when. You know, when Bill Clinton basically gave up the show on Democrats being a party that was supportive of government responding to problems, um, what was his quote? Government's not the solution. He had some, he had some quote in there that the era of big government is over. The era of big government is over. Basically, picking up on the Reagan mm-hmm. attack on government, and uh, you know, I think we're still feeling the effects of that today. There's simply no confidence in mm-hmm. government. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, there's simply no confidence in government. And so much of government has been has been sort of hollowed out, which I think it becomes an endogenous issue, right? It, it's like a like a death spiral on some yeah, yeah, level, exactly. right? Like we yeah. don't have confidence, so we don't support it. And then we have reasons to not have confidence and go on and go on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean we really saw that play itself out in COVID where, you know, you clearly needed a large government response. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it's just relentlessly attacked. And we haven't seen anything yet, as we're going to see next 
congressional term when Fauci and other public health officials are called before Congress to basically be burned at the stake. Yeah. Well, well and the this- opposite side of that is just that the markets are um, infallible, right? That that markets are going to solve these problems and including things like uh, climate change and um, and accepting accepting ever higher uh, dimensions of uh, economic inequality is the price you pay for that kind of efficiency. And um, the the costs to democracy of um, of, uh, scaling inequality are, are basically ignored. Well, and, and this discussion about lack of or, or decreasing trust in institutions and to some extent each other uh, gets to our next set of clips, um, which takes up the issue of polarization and and unity and how extreme has partisanship become? Can we come back from the brink? Uh, This is something that there are no shortage of opinions about on this show and many other places. Uh, But for our purposes, uh, we're going to hear from Liliana Mason of Johns Hopkins University, who we talked to back in the spring. Um, She's the author with Nathan Calmo of a book called Radical American Partisanship, which through uh, public opinion work uh, tries to understand exactly how divided we are um, in in a, in a variety of ways and on a variety of topics. And then we'll hear from John Meacham, the the biographer, um, who's written a lot about the the soul of America, um, the idea that you know we are maybe more united than we think or have the potential to be. So let's hear from Liliana Mason and John Meacham. If the parties could organize, you know, brutal violence during the Civil War, what are we doing right now? And we're only asking questions about, like, do you want to be next door to somebody, right? We're not actually asking anybody the potentially really radical feelings they might have about their own party and people in the other party. And that's, you know, really based on this idea of, of American, you know, political science thinking about, you know, we think of partisanship as a pretty benign thing or as, or as like an organizing, you know, tool for people to be able to vote more easily. And, and so we've never, ever really asked people kind of the more extreme possibilities of their attitudes about people in the other party. So it really does seem to be that there is that one of the major, and for Republicans, actually, racial resentment is the strongest predictor of moral disengagement from Democrats. So it really does seem that one of the things that's happening is that Democrats and Republicans are hitting each other over this specific issue of social equality, right? The traditional social hierarchy, where do women, and, and they also, this, this relationship also holds for Republicans uh, on the sexism scale. So where do women belong on the traditional, on the social hierarchy today? Where, where, do, uh, where do non-white Americans belong on the, on the social hierarchy today? And that that question really seems to be driving a lot of the animosity that we're seeing, partially because the parties have sorted into these kind of identity based groups. And with, you know, sort of white Christian men being in, in, in the Republican Party, that has really centralized the question of status and whether or not we've made enough progress to be an, a more egalitarian, multi-ethnic democracy or whether we need to do more or or whether we've gone too far 
which is which is sort of the the push and pull between Democrats and Republicans, sort of the central question that they seem to be arguing about. My view is you can't love your country only when you win. And as long as we accept the protocols of politics, if we accept the rules of the road, if we accept – pick your you know, analogy, then we can argue. And this country is always – at its best, this country is at 60-40. That's massive unity, right? 40 percent of the country never voted for Franklin Roosevelt. In the three great uh, landslide elections from, 19, from the Second World War until now, uh, 40% still voted the other way, 1964, 1972, and 1984. So what we're really looking at, I think, is 60-40 is the goal or, or the historical measure. Right now, we're at 50.5 to 49.5. Right, so how can we at least get to maybe fifty three forty seven? And at fifty three forty seven, which is what say George H W Bush got in eighty eight or something, we would sit around thinking the country has come together. Both begin, and there's a lot of political science on this, the the structural nature of polarization, all that we can talk about if you want. But I think this is imminently doable because we're not talking about that many people. And all I mean, I mean. I, I don't care if you disagree totally with me on everything. In fact, most people do, I would imagine. But you got to say the election was fair, right? That's the that's the threshold. If you're going to participate in what is a functionally an unfolding plot to undermine governance, then that's not unity. If you if we're all in it, and we fight, but we accept the rules, that's a whole different thing. Mm -hmm. That's what we're supposed to do. I would be interested to know how Lily and John are feeling about American democracy today after mm -hmm. the kind of first major election after 2020. Um, you know, Lily definitely points out that there's an underlying simmering reservoir of political unrest and potential for political violence. Um, and to Meacham's point, there are people who are unwilling to say that elections are legitimate and that has its own set of problems. You know, the we need the loser's consent to move forward. And I guess, you know, maybe on some level, I'm curious to know what you two think about where we stand on those issues, these issues that John and Lily bring up in their interviews. Yeah, if I, if I could pick up with that. I mean, what, what most struck me before this election was that the husband of the Speaker of the House was attacked for political reasons, mm -hmm. and the other party joked about it. Yeah. And I, I don't know that there's anything more really to say about American politics today or anything more that affirms what, what uh, Liliana and her co-author were trying to argue in that book, which mm -hmm. is this much greater acceptance of political violence. And of course, nothing has happened since the election to dispel any of that, right? There was the attack on the nightclub. I, I'm thinking there's something else that I'm missing, but all this violence gets wrapped up. I don't know. I continue to, to feel like, oh, how could I forget that the ex-president met at his uh, summer country club or whatever we call that place, Mar-a-Lago, uh, with 
an avowed white supremacist and anti-Semite. I mean, I, I think that nothing changed from the election. If anything, it's just going to get worse. And I think their findings, which have been confirmed by other polling, I mean, they did their their experiments are, I think, probably more more uh, compelling. But it's been confirmed by other polling data as well uh, that there's just more acceptance of political violence now, especially on the on the right, and uh, that's terrifying. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I feel like the um, the election of 2022 is being presented as being this watershed event that shows that we're, we're out of the woods. And I don't think that's true at all. I think you can say that it was, uh, it could have been a lot worse than it, it was. It shows we can carry out an election. What's that? It showed we could carry out an election. Right, right, right. And, 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 and that maybe yeah. the wind is out of the sails of the whole election denial crowd. Maybe not, but it certainly wasn't, again, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. Um, I, you know, I think... You know, I mean, I, I'm a big Liliana Mason fan. I think I used her work a lot in my in my last book. Um, she is is smart. Her research is good, and I completely agree that there's this cultural core to the split that we find ourselves confronting. Right? That there has been these dramatic cultural shifts in American society, and half of Americans see that as basically a good thing and half of America sees it basically as a bad thing. And when you say you want to make, make, make America great again, you want to go back to the former status quo ante when there was a white male Christian hegemony. You know, if you looked at this, you know, antiseptically, you'd say, well, yeah, that's just kind of what happens when there's a big cultural shift, that there's a, a, a core of people who um, see their identity and their self-interest too tied up in the former status quo to let it go, but eventually it changes. And how soon and, under, and how violent that change is, um, that's a different story, a different question. We don't know the answer to it. But yeah, I, I mean, um, I think that's basically where we are right now. Thank, thank goodness for the people who show up to work every day to make sure that that doesn't happen. Wow, you guys, both Jenna and um, and um, you guys are all like um, coming up with these great segues. Very impressive. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, yes, nice set up. Thank you, Candice, uh, for our last set of clips, which, yeah, looks at to harken back to the name of the show, the ways that democracy works, the ways that, uh, just like you said, the people who show up every day to fight for democracy and the principles therein. So in this set of clips, we're going to hear from uh, Jessica Huseman of the new site Vote Beat that's out on the ground uh, covering uh, county clerks and other people across the country. And then from Joanna Lidgate of the State's United Democracy Center our 2022 Brown Democracy Medal winner for the work they're doing on the legal and the, the policy and the advocacy side uh, to help these folks. So let's hear from Jessica and Joanna. The vast majority of clerks that I speak to on a daily basis are like people who started working at the county when they were 16 years old and like have just been promoted and promoted and promoted, right? Like they're not people who you can't get a degree in election administration, right? Like you just do it. And so, you know, I, I think that that 
realization has been really helpful. Like I have noticed, for example, that clerks are much more willing to spend more time with me and other local media for, for the reasons that, that I've articulated. But, you know, I, you know, I think that the other thing is that there are big nonprofits that are helping these groups come up with communication strategies. So the elections group is a consulting group that does a lot of like work with local municipalities and they had Pam Fessler come in and do like a communications guidebook for election workers. And Pam Fessler is a delight and a genius from NPR. And so, you know, I I, I think that there are these support systems and guidebooks that didn't exist before. Like these people actually needed to be told, like, here's how to engage with the media. And that's not that's not an insult to them. It just like is what it is. And and so now that they've got those tools at their disposal, I can see them putting them in. And I think the good news is that uh, these folks are holding strong. We get to work with them every day. They're incredible at what they do. One in three says they feel unsafe in the job right now, yet they keep doing the job and they're holding strong just like they did in 2020. And they'll continue to do that if we continue to support them. I think about it this way. You know, when I need my car fixed, I take it to a mechanic. When my kid is sick, I take her to go see a nurse or a doctor. Election administrators are professionals, like so many other people we rely on in our lives and in our system. They're trained to do this. They've done it for decades on a nonpartisan basis. And so to be undermining and questioning their work in this way, you know, not only is it totally unmerited, but it's really un-American. And so we do our best, as Norm just described, to support these officials and to educate the public on what they do. But we also get to be inspired by them every day and all across the country. So both Joanna and Jessica reveal for me, on one hand, how important the people on the ground are to making democracy work via the election process in particular. Um, And on the other hand, how much our democracy as we know it depends on unsung heroes, county clerks, poll workers, et cetera, which is quite different from what we were just talking about, the elites who have an entirely different set of incentives, um, some of which are incentive to misbehave and to, you know, undermine the kind of central components of democracy. There are just kind of thousands of people who work at in offices that are ugly and have, you know, bad lighting and, you know, but they um, they they show up to ensure that we can move from one election to the next, despite all of the um, kind of obstacles that people are putting in front of them on an everyday basis. Yes. I mean, bravo to the election workers who managed to pull off a very a good election and they even counted the votes fairly fast, which there were a lot of concerns wouldn't happen. And, you know, these adaptations put in in response to COVID are continuing to, to work pretty effectively. And all of that is good. I, I still think it, it reveals a real weak spot mm-hmm. in our democracy. The fact that our elections are so decentralized, the fact that they're so much of their administration is put into the hands of elected officials and then also to uh, just everyday folks yeah, we, yeah, volunteers. Uh, who are being asked to, to put up with, with quite a bit, increasingly so. You know, this is not the only way that a country can run elections. In other countries, elections are administered by apolitical, nonpartisan, administrative, nationally, national offices 
with uniformity across all voting jurisdictions, uh, with professionals who were paid. And, uh, you know, it's good. It worked. And hopefully it'll work next time, too. But I, I continue to feel like elections are really a, you know, American institutions have held up well in a difficult time, I think. But elections strike me as a really vulnerable area. These election beleaguered, unfairly treated, threatened election workers, helping them figure out um, how to uh, present themselves in terms of the media, uh, how to present the work they do in a way that seems, you know, that that appears less threatening or less nefarious, and also defending them, right, in 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 law and and otherwise. And my kids would be shocked if the, if they heard that I was the, the the Pollyanna of the group. But you know, it is it is true that the one election denier that's operating right now is Carrie Lake out of Arizona, and she is becoming a laughing stock. You know, both in terms of her inability to get any groundswell behind her and in terms of um, the reaction of the general public. So yeah. I'm just saying it's not, it, this is not a done deal. There, there are opportunities here. Do democracy works, damn it. Yeah, I, I, you know, sometime maybe next year or something, we can flesh out a little bit more about what this notion of election denialism means. You know, it's it's all being taken quite literally right now. So they deny the meaning of the 2020 election. And so uh, the big ones all lost. The States United had their focus on the people that were going to be governors, secretary of states, that type of things. The referees, I believe, is the term that States United uses, right? Mm -hmm. They're concerned with replace. But over 60% of from a number I picked up from the Washington Post of uh, Republican House members now are election deniers. And uh, I know somebody here uh, just did a really interesting paper on the tweeting activity of state legislators and the extent to which they're tweeting out misinformation about elections is mind blowing. And it's not like they do just that. You know, election denialism doesn't like to sit there alone. It is part and parcel of a general worldview of conspiracism mm -hmm. and of not accepting reality. And I think we're going to be dealing, and this is why, Chris, I think I probably tend to be a little less optimistic than you around some of these issues coming out of this election. I mean, what does it mean that so many of these people now are in positions of elected office at the state level, in Congress, mm -hmm. at the school board levels? I mean, it's true. Maybe they're not going to be the referees, although that may depend a little bit about how the Moore case is decided. Right. True, they're not going to be the referees. But there's something really toxic about the fact that this has worked its way into our elected officials and public to the extent that it has. And it feels very anti-democratic to me. You know, I think about our conversation we had with Lara Putnam uh, earlier this season about, you know, we have to kind of keep these the two thoughts in our head at the same time and not let the pessimism 
you know, get in the way of the work that's necessary to fight for democracy, whether that is organizing work that, that Lara and her colleagues in southwestern Pennsylvania do, whether it's the, the poll workers, whether it's supporting people doing good journalism uh, and supporting organizations like States United uh, or any of the other democracy reform organizations that are out there. Uh, and I think that's always the balance, maybe going all the way back to the beginning of the show. That's always been the balance that we've been trying to strike here. I mean, I appreciate like just the reminder that we have to have a North Star. We have to have something that we uh, um, we can imagine um, to be a better situation than what we have. And if we just kind of focus on what we don't have, we can't, we, we won't walk toward the kind of the, our ideal situation. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I certainly absolutely agree that this is no occasion to let our guard down. And, and I absolutely agree that the next two years, as so many two years cycles in the past, is going to require vigilance and a willingness to just keep stepping into the ring. And um, that's where we are. Um, but certainly not enough reason to, to, to give up either. So. All right. Well, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, thank you, Michael, Candace, Chris, for another great year. Thank you to all the guests who have joined us over the past year. You've heard from some of them in this episode, but there are a whole host of other episodes you can go and check out while we're off for the holidays. And thank you to uh, our colleagues at WPSU for helping us put the show together and get it out on the airwaves. And thank you to all of you for listening. If there are um, people you think we should be talking to, topics you think we should be talking more about or maybe less about in 2023, <laughs> um, I'll put a link in the show notes to get in touch with us. Any and all suggestions are welcome. So for the entire Democracy Works team, I'm Jenna Spinelli. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Public Media. Our editors are Michael Klein, Chris Kugler, Mark Stitzer, and Clint Yoder. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. Additional production support from Andy Grant and Christine Allen. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Democracy Works is a member of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our podcast collective devoted to democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.